This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. And this week I'll start out reading from our friends up the road at the Cleveland Jewish News. And the first article from the Jewish News, Protesters Target Acton's Residence by Jane Kaufman, staff writer. Protesters took their anger around the extended stay-at-home order to the Bexley neighborhood of Dr. Amy Acton multiple times, ignoring the wishes of Governor Mike DeWine, who pointedly asked people not to demonstrate against him, uh, who asked people to demonstrate against him, not members of his cabinet. In the first protest, May 2nd, two protesters were videotaped carrying guns. In the second, a man held a sign that read, Jewish Leaders John 7-1, a reference to Christian scriptures. Specifically, the New Living Translation of that verse reads, After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. On May 3rd, physicians and medical students in Columbus demonstrated their support for Acton, and the governor's measures to protect Ohioans. Dr. Andrew Shamas, who co-founded Physicians Action Network, said he was pleased with the response of passing motorists on High Street who honked in support. I guess our point at the demonstration wasn't to engage the protesters so much, said Shamas, who is an associate professor of clinical medicine at the, the Ohio State University in Columbus and practices internal medicine. It's just to have our statement out there in terms of our support for Dr. Acton, the fact that the virus is a real and potent threat. People need to be very careful. I think we all need to work together. I think there are always going to be some dissenting voices and some hateful voices. Those just aren't the people I necessarily want to engage. About 30 doctors and medical students carried rope or twine marking off six feet of distance between them, they all wore masks. As it turned out, I thought that kind of had a nice symbolism because it's like standing apart but also bound together, Shamus told the Cleveland Jewish News. DeWine specifically called out those who protested in Acton's neighborhood. I'm the elected official. I'm the one who ran for office, DeWine said during his May 4th press conference. I'm the one who makes the policy decisions. Members of my cabinet, Dr. Acton included, work exceedingly, exceedingly hard but I set the policy. So when you don't like the policy, again, demonstrate against me. That is certainly fair game, but to bother the family of Dr. Acton, I don't think that's fair game. I don't think that's right. I don't think it's necessary to get your point across. You can get your point across very, very easily any day of the week with demonstrations of what I am doing and what policies you disagree with. Less than three hours later, protesters were back in Bexley. KDR Forbes, a freelance photographer who lives in Columbus, told the Cleveland Jewish News people carried red, white, and blue open banners on one side that had the American flag on the other. They sang, God bless America, and this land is your land. Forbes said the May 4th protest was louder than the one on May 2nd and included heavier presence from law enforcement, including Ohio State Highway Patrol troopers who parked in the driveway of Acton's home. They're more, atta uh, they're more attacking the science today, she said May 4th. The second group of protesters was younger than the first group and no one carried weapons. 
Forbes said that at the May 2nd protest, a neighbor told her there were two men carrying guns. Bexley Mayor Ben Kessler told the CJN he was requesting Bexley City Council approve an ordinance at a special city council meeting May 6th that would prohibit people from protesting in front of one residence within a neighborhood. It's a tweak to express goodwill, he said, adding that it represents our best effort to protect any individual resident's right to peaceful and quiet enjoyment of their own home. While such legislation ordinarily takes three readings and goes into effect 30 days later, Kessler anticipated that council might suspend the rules and place it into effect immediately. Clinic escorts, volunteers who escort patients into clinics that offer abortion services to shield them from protesters, sat on Acton's lawn at the May 4th protest, Forbes said, whereas at the previous protest they stood on the tree lawn. Kessler was present at the May 2nd protest, Forbes said. On May 3rd, he posted a message on Facebook without naming Acton as the subject of the protest. In light of the active social media discussion around a protest that occurred this week in Bexley and the possibility of more protests to come, I wanted to share how the city is closely engaged and is doing everything we can to ensure the safety of our residents and our community, he wrote. Protesting in front of the home of an appointed civil servant is, in my opinion, an invasion of privacy and an abhorrent use of First Amendment rights. Nonetheless, as long as it is conducted peacefully, it is protected free speech and attempts to limit the right of protest on public sidewalks in front of homes has been consistently struck down by the courts. Kessler specifically addressed Ohio's open carry law. Aggravating the alarm in our community is the fact that the protesters at the State House and at the protests in Bexley are prone to exercise their open carry rights, he wrote. Open carry is a state of Ohio law that cannot be modified by Bexley's local laws. Additionally, open carry in and of itself cannot be construed legally as threatening behavior. Bexley Police and State of Ohio Security Forces have been in frequent contact regarding security and protests. Bexley PD have monitored the situation from the beginning and were present the entirety of the time during yesterday's protest, observing from a distance. Additionally, they are working closely with State of Ohio agents in order to ensure continued protection of any residents who are the target of protests and of the surrounding neighborhoods. James Pash, Anti-Defamation League Regional Director in Cleveland, decried the protest. It is outrageous for anybody to target Dr. Acton for her faith or who she is, and anti-Semitism has no place in the state of Ohio, he told CJN on May 5th. Dr. Acton should be applauded for her hard work in trying to save the lives of Ohioans, and we call out any anti-Semitic or hateful protests. Lee C. Shapiro, Regional Director of American Jewish Committee Cleveland, expressed similar sentiments. Citizens have the right to protest government policies with which they disagree, she wrote in an email to the CJN. However, it is abhorrent that some have used words and images in their efforts to personally demonize those with whom they disagree. Anti-Semitism and hate have no place in Ohio, and certainly not at Dr. Acton's home. State Representative Casey Weinstein, Democrat Hudson, said he contacted DeWine about his concerns regarding the protests near Acton's home and that DeWine's response to him was similar to his public remarks. The governor can only do so much, Weinstein told the CJN. 
On May 6, the Ohio House voted 58 to 37 to pass Senate Bill 1 to restrict the authority of Acton. Specifically, it would limit her ability to place orders of longer than 14 days and would require review by the Joint Committee on Agency Rule Review, a 10-person body that consists of five members of the Ohio House and five members of the Ohio Senate. Members of the JCARR, as it is known, include Senator Andrew O. Brenner, Republican of Powell, whose wife, Sarah Marie Brenner, compared Acton's orders to those under Nazi Germany. JCARR is chaired by Senator Teresa Gavarone, Republican of Bowling Green. Locally, Senator Sandra R. Williams, Democrat of Cleveland, also serves on JCARR. State Representatives Dave Greenspan, Republican of Westlake, Dave Leland, Democrat of Columbus, and Weinstein, Ohio's three Jewish legislators, voted against the bill. During debate, the House split on partisan lines with Democrats praising her work. Some Republicans spoke of the economic impact of the restrictions Acton has ordered. Other Republicans voted with Democrats. This is a dangerous bill, Weinstein said. It's definitely very much a partisan bill. They're aiming their ire at Dr. Acton. She's their chosen villain. The bill now goes to the Ohio Senate. Weinstein said he is uncertain whether the Senate will take up the bill because Senate President Larry Obhoff, Republican of Medina, has gone on record as, showing, as saying that he does not think this should be our focus right now. Weinstein said the House does not have the votes to override a probable veto from DeWine. It seems likely that since he's a strong supporter of Dr. Acton that he would vote to veto that, Weinstein said. And now we'll go to an update from the New York Jewish Week on the coronavirus. Fauci's advice for Jewish worship, bonfires banned in Israel, Catholic burial for a Jewish woman, by Steve Lipman, a staff writer with the New York Jewish Week. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who directs infectious disease research for the federal government, yesterday, that is Thursday, advised Jews to phase in communal prayer as local governments lift coronavirus pandemic restrictions, JTA reports. The kind of social interactions which is the core of the beauty of your culture has unfortunately led to a higher risk, Dr. Fauci said Thursday in a webcast organized by the Orthodox Union. He encouraged the people on the call to take baby steps toward reestablishing in-person prayer. If you said for the time being, how about once a day and five days a week as opposed to three times a day, seven days a week, if you could phase that part in, that would be a good idea, he said. He added, I don't want to be presumptuous to know what that would mean to you from a spiritual standpoint. Synagogues across the country have been closed since mid-March when states shuttered houses of worship and other gathering places in an effort to curb the spread of the disease. While some synagogues have begun holding services online, that practice is not compatible with Orthodox practices. Rabbi Moshe Hauer, the Orthodox Union's Executive Vice President, told Dr. Fauci that his organization was advising congregations to wait two weeks past government opening dates to start returning to congregational prayer, to designate seats to make sure congregants sit apart, and to stagger services to keep entry into the synagogues compatible with social distancing. He also said the risk was likely to carry over into the high holidays this fall and that pandemic risk mitigation should continue to apply to worship at that time. 
Rabbi Herschel Billet, spiritual leader of the Young Israel of Woodmere, Long Island, and a former president of the Rabbinical Council of America, has sent an open letter to members of his community in which he strongly urged them to follow social distancing regulations. The sanctity of life supersedes all religious obligations. Indeed, protecting the sanctity of life is the overriding choice of halakha, or Jewish law, Rabbi Billet wrote. Hence the social distancing and all sanitary guidelines that we have been following is the expectation of Jewish law. That means no communal prayer services. That means no normal funeral services. That means no Kaddish. That means no Shiva visits. This determination is absolute and irrefutable. The services that we have been conducted uh, to, that we have that have been conducted to date, in defiance of the community, are worthless. They are a violation of Jewish law. The Kaddish is of no value. It does not honor the soul of the deceased. Rabbi Billet later clarified that he wrote the letter because there have been many minyanim in the five towns in violation of our community standards. Palestinian medical personnel from Gaza have reportedly received training in Israel to deal with the novel coronavirus, raising questions among Palestinians about whether the training came through coordination between Israel and the Hamas government in Gaza, the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, or perhaps a humanitarian group, according to Al-Manitor news site. Following a report on Israeli television that a team from Sheba Medical Center in Ramat Gan held a training course for about 20 medical workers from Gaza at the Eretz Crossing, Fathi Abu Warda, an advisor to the Ramallah Health Ministry, told Al-Manitor that the medical measures were needed to prevent the spread of coronavirus. Jewish Federations of North America has become, begun a fundraising drive to buy life-saving medical supplies for frontline providers. Not-for-profit Jewish nursing homes, hospice care centers, home care, and other frontline providers for the elderly have suffered devastating fatalities due to the coronavirus pandemic, JFNA announced. They are facing a dire shortage of vital personnel, protect, uh, personal protective equipment like gloves, masks, and gowns, and no one is hearing their cries for help. These healthcare providers can't afford to pay the increased prices for PPE, and their residents are suffering at alarming rates. The family of Leon and Deborah Black of New York has launched a philanthropic program called NYC Healthcare Heroes, which will deliver food, cleaning products, and personal care products to more than 100,000 healthcare professionals at hospitals across the five boroughs through the end of June. The program, which launched two weeks ago, has already delivered thousands of packages to Bellevue, Elmhurst, Coney Island, and Kings County Hospitals. Leon Black, a private equity billionaire, and Deborah Black, are members and benefactors of Park Avenue Synagogue. A cousin of comedian Elaine Boozler received an expensive Catholic funeral after dying recently at a Brooklyn nursing home, even though she's Jewish, and had arrangements to be buried at an already paid-for plot elsewhere, the New York Post reports. Dorothy Bushell, 83, died April 13th after contracting the coronavirus at the Hamilton Park Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Bay Bridge, but her family claimed they weren't notified and only learned about her death when, her, when one of her cousins tried to reach her for her birthday. By that time, Bushel had already been interred at Forest Green Park Cemetery in Morganville, New Jersey, which charged her with a $15,000 Catholic funeral package. I am horrified at how she must have died and how she was swindled 
and at how she is now far from her family in a strange grave, Boozler said. The comedian also said she had insured in paperwork as recently as August 2018 that her cousin would be buried in New Montefiore Cemetery in Farmingdale. From Israel, the number of people in Israel who have died of coronavirus reached 240 on Friday. 16,381 people have been diagnosed with the disease. Two Israelis accused of trying to defraud customers by claiming to sell medical equipment necessary during the coronavirus outbreak have been extradited to France. The two allegedly approached grocery stores in France and pretended to work at businesses they said were developing a drug to treat COVID-19, the Ynet News site reports. The two residents of Ranana have French citizenship. Israeli ministers approved a ban on bonfires across the country and a blockade of the Meron pilgrimage site in northern Israel ahead of next week's Lag Omer festival to prevent gatherings amid fears of a fresh outbreak of the coronavirus, the Times of Israel reports. The emergency regulations came after the cabinet rebuffed the National Security Council recommendation to impose a lockdown on the country over the festival on May 11 to 12th. Violators who light bonfires anywhere in the country or rent out rooms in Meron will be fined. Students from the Bezalel Academy of Arts and Design in Jerusalem have partnered with the Masks for Docs and Tikkun Olam Makers organizations to provide and print thousands of protective shields for medical staffs in various hospitals. Last week, 150 medical shields were donated to the cardiology department at Hadassah Ein Karim. Yuval Buzaglo, a Bessalel student, uses a 3D printer she built for her own small home business. And deaths this week. Enrique Mugika Herzog, a former political prisoner who became the first Jew to serve in a Spanish government since the expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492, died of the coronavirus April 10th, JTA reports. He was 88. In the early 1980s, Mr. Mugisa played a pivotal role in talks that led to the establishment of diplomatic relations between Spain and Israel. A key figure in the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, he forged important links with Israeli politicians like Shimon Peres and Michael Harish through the Socialist International. In 1988, he was named Spain's Minister of Justice, making him the first Jew to sit in the Spanish government since 1492. He also served as vice president of the Spanish-Israeli Friendship Association. And next from the Jewish Week, synagogues plan for a new year like no other. COVID-19 is forcing hard choices for the high holy days from Zoom services to limited seating by Stuart Ain. On the holiest days of the Jewish calendar in this year of the plague, there's likely to be a gaping spiritual hole in the worship experience, one that no Zoom screen will be able to fill. Synagogues across the country have been forming committees to develop options for September's High Holy Day services that are in compliance with state and local directives and the suggestions of medical advisory panels. Some are considering reopening with limited attendance. Others are already assuming that people will worship at home and depending on the movement and the rabbi, tuning in via Zoom. One thing is already clear, this will not be a typical Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. 
It's going to be very sad, said Stephen Bain, the American Jewish Committee's Director of Contemporary Jewish Life. The whole concept of social distancing runs very counter to the meaning of being a Jew in the 21st century in America. The things we are so used to sharing with others will likely fall by the wayside. Being a Jew is about being with others. Rabbi Alan Lucas, spiritual leader of Temple Beth Shalom in Roslyn Heights, Long Island, agreed, noting the most crowded part of the shul is the lobby, where everyone is standing and saying hi. There will be a lot of challenges this year. He said his congregation is considering having multiple services with different experiences available to people, both watching at home and live. But Rabbi Lucas said he doesn't want to see a repeat of what happened in the days before New York State was ordered locked down by the governor and all synagogues were closed. We had moved our daily minion to the main sanctuary so that we had 20 people in a room that could accommodate 400, he recalled. But that proved to be an inducement for those who should not have come because of their age and for medical reasons to come. I realized that if I did not have the service, they wouldn't be tempted. We have to be careful not to recreate that dilemma. Even if synagogues are given the green light to open, Rabbi Susan Elkodsi, spiritual leader of Long Island's Malvern Jewish Center, said she is not sure if her synagogue would open its doors, but rather continue with services on Zoom. I am anticipating that even if we are allowed to gather, it would not be in the interest of pikuach nefesh, the Jewish value of saving life, especially with an older congregation, she said, explaining that most of her congregation's 30 families are in their 70s. But even if live streaming and Zoom provide a high holiday experience, it might not fulfill the needs of some regarding their Jewish identity and connection, and that is something we have to think about, according to Rabbi Stuart Vogel, president of the conservative movement's rabbinical assembly. Can there be a balance between being there in person and a virtual community, and is virtual a threat to the in-person? As Bain described the challenges, alternatives need to be found even in the Orthodox community. The synagogue remains central as a pillar of the community, and the challenge will be to provide synagogue programs and services without violating the formal restrictions imposed by the coronavirus, Bain said. In outlining new guidelines Monday for reopening businesses, Governor Andrew Cuomo did not provide a specific timeline, but offered a series of public health milestones that must be met, and that will vary by region. The guidelines did not specify houses of worship, although theaters and other crowded entertainment venues are designated as the last places to fully reopen under the plan. Although Reform and many conservative synagogues are preparing to live stream and Zoom their services if they are not permitted or advised to reopen, Orthodox synagogues and some traditional conservative synagogues will not, according to Rabbi Joseph Potosnik, Executive Vice President of the New York Board of Rabbis. This would be consistent with Shabbat and holiday restrictions on using electrical devices and connecting with technology. The Midway Jewish Center in Seyoset, Long Island, is a traditional conservative synagogue that has not conducted Sabbath or Passover services during the lockdown because it does not live stream or Zoom. But its associate rabbi, Joel Levinson, said that with the high holidays approaching, we have to think how to keep our people together and connected to the traditions and rituals if synagogues must remain closed. We are just starting to acknowledge that we have to think carefully about this, he said, uh, regarding high holiday services. In addition to the values of, of pikuach nefesh and shmirat ha-nefesh to preserve a life, 
Rabbi Levinson said, we want to preserve Jewish souls and community. So we will have to do some very serious reflection on what we can do. Rabbi Dahlia Bernstein, spiritual leader of Congregation Beth Or in Belmore, Long Island, said her conservative congregation never used live streaming before, but installed it when the synagogue was ordered closed because of the coronavirus. Before Shabbat, we do a Zoom service which is interactive and lets us see each other's faces, she says. If synagogues are allowed to reopen, Rabbi Arthur Schneier, spiritual leader of the Park East Synagogue, an Orthodox congregation in Manhattan, said it will be a challenge deciding which congregants will be assigned seats in the sanctuary and which will be assigned to parallel services. To give everyone equal treatment is the most important thing, he said, of his High Holy Days congregation of 2,500. Rabbi Potasnik said some Orthodox congregations are considering renting large auditoriums to accommodate members if their own synagogues cannot hold everyone while still maintaining social distancing. Others are considering holding several services in succession to accommodate everyone. He said a conference will be held soon exploring ways to approach the holidays with and without technologies. For those synagogues whose congregants will be praying at home, some are considering making a recording that congregants, congregants can listen to before the holiday to enrich their experience. At the Hampton Synagogue in West Hampton Beach, Long Island, the Cantor and Professional Choir will be recording all of the high holiday services in the coming weeks for broadcast on the holidays on JBS, the Jewish Broadcasting Service, according to Rabbi Mark Schneier, the synagogue's spiritual leader. I'm not advocating that anyone turn on a TV, but in this age of smart TV, they can program it to turn on at a specific time, and there would be no violation of halakha, he said. Should the synagogue be able to reopen, Rabbi Schneier said it can accommodate up to 200 with social distancing. He said he expects many congregants to remain home because of the coronavirus, and he said he is considering asking those who do come to provide documentation that they either do not have COVID-19 or have the antibodies to prove they already had it. Farley Weiss, president of the National Council of Young Israel, stressed that the halachic view has been that the priority is to protect your life, and if you are risking your life by going to services, you should not go. That same advice was echoed by Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal, the incoming joint CEO of the conservative movement's congregational and rabbinic arms. He wrote in an article in E-Jewish Philanthropy that before reopening, Jewish institutions must make health and safety a priority. It should make us among the last to return to physically proximate activity rather than the first, he said. In an interview, Rabbi Blumenthal said that in addition to live streaming or pre-recording programs, some congregations may try to meet in small groups and empower lay leaders to facilitate various kinds of experiences either in person or online. The Sutton Place Synagogue in Manhattan is planning to arrange for its members to reserve time during the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to come to the synagogue with their families and offer a prayer before the open ark. This is one of the most meaningful parts of the High Holy Days during Ne'ilah, the final service of Yom Kippur, said Rabbi Rachel Ain, the congregation's spiritual leader. The pandemic, noted Baim, has reminded us of the precariousness of human life. As the Unatana Tokef liturgy puts it for the High Holy Days, we do not know who will live and who will die. Nonetheless, the message of Judaism remains fundamentally an optimistic one. As we enter a new year, 
even under these dire conditions, we look forward to better times for all. And next from the Jewish Week, ties between politicians, Haredim, tested in coronavirus crisis. Some observers see a fraying relationship in the wake of criticism by de Blasio and Cuomo, by Steve Lipman. They are a reliable, no ultra-reliable voting bloc, and therefore a coveted political prize for governors, mayors, and city council members. And Mayor Bill de Blasio, back from his days as a councilman representing Orthodox precincts in Brooklyn, and Governor Cuomo, have tended the relationship with Haredi Jews in Borough Park and Williamsburg with great care. In the transactional nature of politics, both sides of the equation, powerful politicians and powerful Haredi rabbis representing tens of thousands of votes, have benefited. But in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, which has taken a huge toll on the Haredi neighborhoods of Borough Park and Williamsburg, that relationship is being severely tested. Harsh condemnations by both Cuomo and de Blasio of Haredi Jews who are flouting social distancing rules have driven a wedge, though perhaps a narrow one, between friends, straining the carefully cultivated ties that have taken years to establish. The relationship is frayed. It's been tested, said Esther Fuchs, professor of international and public affairs and political, Simon, uh, political science, and director of the Urban and Social Policy Program at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. But she was quick to add the situation is not a full-on rift and is unlikely to portend a long-term deterioration in ties between the mayor's and governor's office and the Hasidic community. Friends disagree with each other without ending a friendship, said Kalman Yeager, who represents Borough Park and part of nearby Flatbush in the city council. Friends have to be honest with each other. In the last month, both the mayor and the governor took the Hasidic community to task for flouting social distancing recommendations. Following a crowded funeral of a Hasidic rabbi in Williamsburg a month ago, Cuomo called on the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, community to refrain from holding large gatherings, stating that the police department would do what they need to do to enforce social distancing regulations. I made it clear that these social distancing regulations are not just pleas, they are regulations that you can be fined for, he said. And last week, in a more heated dust-up, de Blasio singled out the Jewish community after another large Hasidic funeral in Williamsburg drew a crowd of thousands into the streets. In a trio of tweets, the mayor said he had instructed his police department to fine or even arrest social distancing violators. My message to the Jewish community and all communities is this simple. The time for warnings has passed. I have instructed the New York Police Department to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This is about stopping this disease and saving lives, period. Accusing the mayor of fanning the flames of anti-Semitism, a wide range of Jewish organizations faulted de Blasio for making a reckless, intemperate declaration. The Jewish responses to de Blasio's included accusations that the mayor engaged in scapegoating the entire Jewish community for the actions of a few. Among those criticizing de Blasio's words were Representative Jerry Nadler, members of the City Council, State Senate and State Assembly, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, the World Jewish Congress, the Anti-Defamation League CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, and the Bend the Ark Human Rights Organization. The mayor's tweets had managed to bring together 
usually disparate Jewish organizations and leaders, Fuchs noted. Some critics noted that de Blasio had not responded in similarly strident terms earlier when New Yorkers gathered in parks to watch military planes fly over the city in a show of support for city workers. Others pointed to the mayor's own habit of walking in Brooklyn's Prospect Park, where crowds sometimes gather on Sunday days in spite of social distancing guidelines. And former State Assembly member Dov Hyken said a computer study of anti-Semitic activity on Twitter after the mayor's tweets indicated astounding data that makes clear as day the magnitude of damage caused to the Jewish people. The Haredi news site Vasis Neis cited Hyken's data analyst Morty Rubin, who noted that as news of de Blasio's remarks trended on Twitter, so did anti-Semitic reactions. Over the years, Mayor de Blasio has cemented his ties with the Hasidic community. He supported the community's positions on Mitzitza Bepeh, a circumcision technique in which the moil uses his mouth to suck blood from the baby's wound by rescinding a parental consent form mandated by the Bloomberg administration. He was accused of slow walking a Department of Education investigation into substandard secular education at several dozen Haredi yeshivas. And before issuing tough measures requiring measles vaccinations, he was accused of dragging his feet when measles diagnoses spiked among some Haredi neighborhoods. He has given them a wide berth to manage their own community, Fuchs said. De Blasio himself spoke of those ties last week at a news conference in which he addressed his tweets. I have a long, deep relationship with the Orthodox Jewish community, a lot of personal relationships, a lot of people I know and respect, he said. I have a lot of love for the community. Critics like Heikind, who served as an outspoken advocate of Orthodox interests during nearly two decades in the State Assembly, suggest the romance has soured. Heiken points to the fact that de Blasio is not seeking re-election in suggesting the mayor may be less inclined to play to Haredi interests. Term limited, he doesn't need people's votes anymore, said Heiken. And Heiken said the actions of some Haredi Jews in ignoring the mayor's directives last week to fulfill their religious obligations can be seen as a sign that the generally progressive positions of de Blasio often conflict with Orthodox Jews' conservative views. He doesn't represent their values, said Heikind. But several politicians and representatives of Jewish organizations call the recent, recent dust-ups a blip in otherwise harmonious relations between the Haredi community and the mayor and governor. They say it is too early to state what direction the relationship will take after the COVID-19 pandemic ends, and political and Jewish leaders add that the flouting of the social distancing rules was committed by only a small, unrepresentative number of young Haredi Jews, many of whom do not have access to television news reports or the Internet that had carried the social distancing warnings. It's not the leadership of the Hasidic community who flouted the social distancing regulations, said David Luchens, professor of political science at Touro College. This was a very specific issue, not a symbol of a larger estrangement, said an official in a prominent Jewish organization who asked not to be identified. In a sign of the delicate nature of the relationship, several Jewish leaders pointed to recent letters of support for de Blasio issued by both sides of the fractured Satmar community, including the Yetev Led de Satmar and its affiliated Central United Talmudic Academy. Politics are always shifting, said sociologist Samuel Heilman, 
who has written extensively about Haredi Jews, the Hasidic community has always learned how to adapt and let bygones be got bygones when it comes to their needs. Same for politicians. They need each other, Luchin said, calling de Blasio the best mayor the Haredi community ever had. The Haredi community will need to maintain a close relationship with de Blasio, whose term will end in a year and a half, Fuchs said, adding that the mayor's wife, Sherlane McRae, is likely to run for Brooklyn Borough President. He still needs the community, and the Hasidic community needs all the political goodwill they can muster. Fuchs called the tweets a mistake, an isolated incident, not an indication that he no longer will be responsive to the community. Fuchs pointed to three upcoming signs to judge how the mayoral Haredi relationship develops after the height of the COVID-19 crisis, the identity of people appointed to city hall task forces, future access to the mayor, and the frequency of highly publicized meetings. The mayor's long-term ties with the Haredi community apparently paid off last year. In an attempt to garner donations for his unsuccessful presidential campaign, de Blasio sought help from Brooklyn's Haredim, asking in Yiddish, online and through WhatsApp, for 10,000 individual donors to give $1 each. The appeals emphasized that donations did not necessarily imply support for the mayor's left-wing presidential campaign, but simply would earn him a spot in Democratic debates. The appeals, according to Politico, also implied that he would reward the community with favorable treatment in the future. By donating the dollar, you support your needs, the entire ultra-Orthodox public, and our rights and needs by answering the call of influential people who need to show that the public recognizes those who understand our interests, one message stated. The mayor's campaign did not report how much money was raised in the targeted pitch to, to Haredim. As a sign of a still strong relationship, the letter issued last week by the Yetev Lev de Satmar and Central United Talmudic Academy expressed our strong support for the extraordinary efforts undertaken by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio during the devastating COVID-19 pandemic. We strongly denounce the vicious attacks against the mayor, particularly those accusing him of anti-Semitism. The close relationship between Mr. de Blasio and our community go back close to two decades, during which time we have come to know, respect, and appreciate his understanding and sensitivity to the unique needs of our community. We consider him a dear friend and pray for his success. Our positions remain consistent. Meyer Rispler, a leader of the Satmar's Aronim faction, wrote, We do not condone any behavior that puts people at risk and pledge to keep working alongside the brave men and women of the New York Police Department in addressing and eliminating any such occurrences. Shaul Perlstein, a leader of the Zionim faction of Satmar, also praised the mayor in a letter that was shared widely on Twitter. We want to disavow the attacks and derogatory language against our mayor from people from outside the community and from reckless people among us, he wrote. We call upon the entire community not to be drawn into the view, their views and not to be influenced by those big mouths on hotlines and the Internet who are trying to kindle a fire of hate. It shall never happen. Naftali Moster, a Borough Park-born one-time Hasid who has become an advocate of stronger secular studies in Haredi schools, suggested that the mayor's language referring to the Jewish community, instead of singling out Hasidic Jews, reflected his still strong support for and in Hasidic circles. 
Moster called the mayor's tweets a contradiction, uh, rather a continuation of that special relationship. It was very clear this wasn't a modern Orthodox or Reform funeral, but a Hasidic one, but the mayor still couldn't bring himself to criticize Hasidic leaders who have failed again and again to compel their followers to keep the social distancing guidelines. In fact, Moster said just earlier that day, he told the reporter that Hasidic leaders had been very cooperative. So to remain consistent, he simply lashed out at the Jewish community and all communities, as opposed to once and for all saying what we all know to be true. He's let Hasidic leaders do whatever they wanted, even at the expense of children's health, education, and safety. And next, an editorial from the Jewish Week, The False Choice Between Safety and the Economy. The open-up protesters seen holding signs comparing government-issued stay-at-home orders to Nazi directives seem to care as little about historical accuracy as they do about the well-being of their fellow citizens. Nazism was a cult of death. The political leaders who are listening to the best advice of scientists and, yes, economists, are out to slow the spread of a dangerous contagion, save lives, and make the economy itself healthier in the long term. Jewish institutions are, for the most part, resisting the urge to rush back to business as usual, as was evidenced in the painful but necessary decision by the Union for Reform Judaism to close all of its summer camps, a bellwether of closures to come. As URJ said in its announcement, the risks posed by COVID-19 threaten our most sacred values, the health and well-being of our children, staff, and faculty that attend camp along with their communities back home. Responsible leaders aren't asking for a complete shutdown of Jewish life until we can safely venture from our homes. Rather, they are taking what Reconstructing Judaism leaders in a model statement describe and prescribe as actions dictated by our values and that are in concert with the best scientific and medical advice available. Decisions must be local and contextual, contextual based on local circumstances such as infection rates, testing ability, health care capacity, population makeup, availability of PPE, etc. The Reconstructing Judaism Statement also warns that opening of synagogues, JCCs, camps, schools, institutions, and organizations will happen in stages and may also be sporadic and inconsistent. Like the URJ's announcement, the Reconstructing Judaism Statement asks leaders of its affiliated institutions to take into consideration our deeply held values of pikuach nefesh, saving lives, caring for the elderly, infirm and at risk, and focusing on community wellness over individual comfort. Note how that contrasts from the words of Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a supporter of the Reopen Movement, who said there are more important things than living, and that's saving this country for my children and grandchildren, and saving this country for all of us. A country that treats its GDP as a sacred value and doesn't do all it can to protect the most vulnerable, which includes the elderly, first responders, healthcare workers, and evidence shows people of color is hardly a country worth saving. Patrick and others are presenting their fellow Americans with a false choice between saving lives and reviving the economy. 
as the vast majority of economists told researchers from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, abandoning the drastic lockdowns too soon would lead to greater total economic damage down the road. This doesn't mean ignoring the deep pain caused by the devastating losses of jobs, savings, and revenue. Everyone wants businesses, schools, and entertainment venues to open as soon as possible. Thankfully, the majority of Americans agree that this has to go hand-in-hand with adequate testing, contact tracing, proper sanitation, and social distancing. They support a massive program of emergency aid to those who need it, understanding such assistance is an investment, not a handout. That's what we and our leaders need to focus on. It doesn't make you soft or unpatriotic to choose life. And next from the Jewish Week, Reform Seminary's new president faces pandemics challenges. HUCJIR's Andrew Refield is counting on his academic and executive experience to reshape the movements for campuses by Gary Rosenblatt. Andrew Refield has an impressive history of adjusting to new challenges. A professor of political science at Washington University in St. Louis for almost 20 years, he switched careers and served as professional head of the St. Louis Jewish Federation from 2012 until last year when he became the president of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He is the first layman to lead the movement's flagship center of higher education, training rabbis, cantors, educators, and communal workers in the U.S. and Israel. It would seem that nothing could have prepared Refield 54 for dealing with the impact of the coronavirus in his first year on the job. He has been forced to cancel in-person classes at the seminary's four campuses, New York, Cincinnati, Los Angeles, and Jerusalem, and prepare for the human, educational, and economic fallout of the pandemic well into the future. We're assessing the impact for each of our students and campuses, Refield explained calmly during a recent Zoom interview from his home in Manhattan. He created a crisis management team of 32 on March 2nd with heavy faculty involvement and student input to help get through Passover. Now a task force has been formed to prepare for the next academic year and the worst case scenario of a year of distance learning if necessary. We also need to be prepared for an on again off again year if the quarantine comes back. The task force is new learning management systems and training teachers to be effective in their online classes. Refield's varied professional background of scholar, Jewish communal leader, and executive administrator may provide just the right components to meet the current crisis. Unlike the previous nine presidents of HUCJIR who go back to 1875, Refield is not a rabbi. He says it took about three weeks for the firm hired to conduct the search to convince him to be a candidate for the position. I was excited, humbled, and amazed at the opportunity, he recalled, but I didn't see the possibility of a non-rabbi in this position. Gradually, he came around. Joy Greenberg, who chaired the 23-member Presidential Search Committee, described Refield as uniquely qualified intellectually, spiritually, and professionally to lead the institution in its mission to transform the Jewish community and the broader world. When his his appointment was announced last year, Refield said he hoped to combine a return to an academic footing, but in a position of leadership, management, fundraising, strategic planning, and public messaging. Now, as all those skills are being employed, Refield notes that 
disruption can also result in great innovation. The impact of the coronavirus crisis has underscored some of the themes he emphasized in his inaugural address as his installation as president last fall. It was during that moving speech that he acknowledged the poignancy of his succeeding rabbi Aaron Pankin, who was killed when the small plane he was piloting crashed seven months earlier. I take on a presidency that no one wished needed to be filled under circumstances we pray may never face again, Redfield said, praising Rabbi Pankin as a gifted and beloved teacher. Setting forth his own views, Redfield asserted that the reform movement faces a crisis of identity and authenticity. By that, as he explained in his inaugural address, he meant reform Jews too often define themselves by the things they don't do or only by their commitment to inclusion for social justice. He called for inspiring more people to live committed, engaged lives as religiously progressive Jews and strengthening the ideological foundations of the reformed Jewish public sphere that he worried are not felt strongly enough in the pews to sustain us in the 21st century. One of those foundations, he said, is the primacy of reason, understanding the world, including religious life, through reason, evidence and science. He believes that reason and rationality must be the primary way to understand our world and God's place in it. Over the course of several interviews, Raffield observed that a greater expectation and respect for science was one of the lessons learned from the current pandemic. He also noted the need for a restructuring of America's safety net based on a policy of public welfare and caring for others. In his first months in his new post, Refield fulfilled his pledge to spend a month residing at each of HUCJIR's four campuses, assessing the culture of each, seeing what practices could be shared, and getting to know faculty and students. Bruce Phillips, a professor of sociology at HUCJIR's Los Angeles campus, was impressed with how Refield asked different kinds of questions from a management perspective. He was looking at what resources make our campuses unique, our campus unique, and which ones can be shared with other campuses. He's a systems thinker. For example, though the seminary's first year in Israel program was created more than five decades ago to help immerse students in the Hebrew language, Phillips and Raphael came to realize that Israel is an important place where Reform Judaism will grow, and he said we should nurture, we should make nurturing Reform Judaism there core to our mission. Sarah Berman, who is in her fifth year in the rabbinic program at the New York campus, has been deeply impressed by Raphael's personal warmth. She was one of several people interviewed who mentioned his gift for remembering people's names and his ability to inspire by sharing his vision. Raphael spoke at a retreat Berman chaired last summer, and she said it was instructive to hear him in an open and honest way talk about who and what has influenced him in his path. He thinks differently from any other administrative leader, she said, in using the past to approach the future. And he was able to make people, people feel seen and heard in a way that was special. During the retreat, Raffield was asked some hard questions by students, Berman recalled, like why he feels qualified as a layman to lead HUCJIR. Without being defensive, he talked about where he saw his strengths and limitations. As he did in our interviews, Raffield has noted in his talks that he has been a deeply he has been deeply involved in the reform movement since his childhood in Baltimore. He taught Hebrew school, was a member of a temple youth group, served as a youth director in the movement's camps, and later served on the board of the congregation he belonged to in Chicago. 
It all began, he said, with his first temple youth retreat, youth group retreat at Baltimore Hebrew Congregation in 1981, from which he came away inspired by a caring community of peers who took ideas seriously, engaged in meaningful ritual and song, and created a space to welcome an outsider among them. He said it was the first time he felt at home in my own tradition. In seeking to promote the ideas and the leadership that strengthened the Jewish public sphere, the institutions that form the canvas of Jewish communal life, Raphael says that HUCJIR must be flexible in responding to the needs of the consumer without wavering in our mission. That mission, he believes, is to drive our ideas and help build the foundation of goodness, holiness, righteousness, and justice for all who inhabit the earth. And now we'll go over to JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, for some news briefs. First, deep layoffs at Jewish Federations of North America, the organization tasked with helping Jewish nonprofits through the crisis, by Shira Hanau. The nonprofit organization, leading an emergency coalition to coordinate the Jewish response to the pandemic-induced financial crisis, has itself slashed its staff. Jewish Federations of North America, an umbrella group of communal fundraising and programming organizations across the country, announced layoffs and executive salary cuts in a message to board members and federation executives Wednesday. We need to redirect resources, CEO Eric Fingerhut and Chair Mark Wilf said in the message. Accordingly, accordingly we have today implemented a plan to reduce the number of full-time employees at JFNA, so that we can aggressively pursue the priority needs that have become clear during this emergency period. The letter did not specify how many staff members were laid off or what they do at the organization, and a spokesperson declined to comment on the staff changes. But multiple, resources, multiple sources familiar with JFNA confirmed that the cuts ran deep with as many as 37 staff members laid off, out of a total staff size of about 180 in the United States and Israel. The news comes as the work of local federations in gathering and distributing communal funds is perhaps more important than ever, but when its sources of incomes in the form of dues from local federations as well as direct donations are imperiled by the financial crisis. The letter stressed that the umbrella organization would continue to support local federations with fundraising as they acknowledged the difficulty of that work. JFNA took on that effort just six weeks ago when it announced that it would lead an emergency coalition to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. The coalition was formed in part to help laid off employees of Jewish organizations, including federations, as budgets tightened. But the same conditions that imperil local organizations are affecting the umbre umbrella group, according to the letter. Fundraising is challenging, and some long-standing lines of work are not practical during the pandemic. The usual ways we have built the financial support for our work are not available to us right now, wrote Fingerhut and Wilf. Missions, community events, and even visits to our donors' homes and offices are going to be severely limited for the near future. JFNA organizes international trips for donors as well as training and conferences for Federation staff across the country. With social distancing in place, those activities are likely canceled for the next several months. Fingerhut also announced that he would take a temporary 10% salary reduction and that seven senior leaders would cut their salaries by 5%. 
According to the most recent tax filing available, Finger Hut's predecessor, Jerry Silverman, earned $634,849 in 2017. JFNA's layoffs come as other Jewish organizations begin to shed staff as they reckon with the changed world. Hillel International, the umbrella organization for Jewish student life centers on campus, laid off or furloughed more than 20% of its staff last month. Local Jewish organizations that rely on service fees have also been hit hard, such as one Jewish community center that laid off all but two of its 178 employees. JFNA serves as an umbrella organization for 146 Jewish federations and 300 smaller network communities, which together employ around 10,000 people and distributes a total of $3 billion annually for social services and educational programs in Israel and North America. In their message, Fingerhut and Wolf said they were confident that the groups would uh, together weather the pandemic by innovating. We are confident we will, Jewish life will flourish, and our response to this crisis will be remembered alongside the greatest moments in the already illustrious history of the Federation system they wrote. And next, Israel bans traditional bonfires for Lag Omer by Marcy Oster, JTA Jerusalem. Israelis will be prohibited from the traditional practice of lighting bonfires on Lag Omer. Lagba Omer, which this year starts Monday night and lasts for 24 hours, marks the 33rd day of the counting of the days between the holidays of Passover and Shavuot. It also marks the end of a minor mourning period, recognizing the deaths of thousands of students of the 2nd century CE sage Rabbi Akiva. Israel's cabinet on Wednesday night approved emergency regulations to prohibit the bonfires in order to prevent the transmission of the COVID-19 virus. Traditional bonfires and other events that are held yearly at the tomb of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai on Mount Moron will be canceled this year. Instead, the religious services minister will allow three separate bonfires, each led by a prominent rabbi, in the area of the tomb to be held by special permit at different times. No more than 50 people will be permitted to participate in each bonfire, and women must be allowed equal participation. No one will be permitted to enter the tomb, and it will remain closed through May 17th. The community of Moran will be open only to residents beginning on Thursday. Lagba Omer is the yurt site of Rabbi Shuman Bar Yochai, who was a disciple of Rabbi Akiva. One interpretation says that the bonfires are a symbol of the light he brought to the world. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening and wishing you a wonderful week ahead. Thank you.